0: If you are enjoying a side of mayo, please consider rating and reviewing in whatever program you use to listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are the easiest way to get this podcast in front of additional listeners. And additional listeners would be great. I would love at some point for this to become more than just a handful of people listening to me. So, any little bit helps. Mm. Welcome to A Side of Mail. Episode 5. The Fifth World. Today I will be looking at the creation story and history of the Navajo people. I'm going to start off by apologizing because there are a lot of Navajo words in the story and I have not been able to find good pronunciations for them. So I will do my best, but anyone who knows the language will probably want to slap me by the end of this. For those who are unfamiliar with the name Navajo, they are one of the indigenous tribes in North America. Their land is a few hours south of where I live, so they're not a tribe I have had a ton of experience with, but I did spend a spring break rafting down the San Juan River and seeing some of the historical sites that trace back to the Navajo and their neighboring peoples. It was a fun trip with great sights, but unfortunately, we had to stop and make an emergency campfire due to a snowstorm coming through. Definitely made for a cold spring break. With that, let's get into the story. The Story of the Emergence. At Tobilhaski Dee, in the middle of the First World, white arose in the east, and they regarded it as day there, they say. Blue rose in the south, and still it was day to them, and they moved around. Yellow rose in the west, and showed that evening had come. Then dark arose in the north, and they lay down and slept. At Tobilhaski Dee, water flowed out from the center, and went in different directions. One stream flowed to the east, another to the south, and another to the west. There were dwelling places on the border of the stream that flowed to the east, one which flowed to the south, and one which flowed to the west also. To the east, there was a place called Tan. To the south, a place called Nahodula. To the west, a place called Lokatsa Sakad. Again, to the east, there was a place called Esalai. To the south, a place called Tehazitul. And to the west, a place called Vesitzebehobim. Then again, to the east, there was a place called Leahogun. To the south, a place called Siltzintah. And to the west, a place called Sietzbehogun. Dark ants lived there. Red ants lived there. Dragonflies lived there. Yellow beetles lived there. Hard beetles lived there. Stone carrier beetles lived there. Black beetles lived there. Coyote dung beetles lived there. Bats lived there white-faced beetles lived there. Locusts lived there. White locusts lived there. These twelve people started in life there. To the east extended an ocean, to the south an ocean, to the west an ocean, and to the north an ocean. In the ocean to the east lay Teholtzvi, he was chief of the people there. In the ocean to the south lived Blue Heron, who was chief of the people there. In the ocean to the west was frog, who was chief of the people there. In the ocean to the north was White Mountain Thunder, and he was chief of the people there. The people quarreled among themselves, and this is the way it happened. They committed adultery, one people with another. Many of the women were guilty. They tried to stop it, but they could not. Teholtzideh, the chief in the east, said, What shall we do with them? They like not the land they dwell in. In the south, Blue Heron spoke to them, and in the west, Frog said, No longer shall you dwell here. I say, I am chief here. To the north, White Mountain Thunder said, Go elsewhere at once. Depart from here. When again they sinned, and again they quarreled, Teholtzidee in the east would not speak to them. Blue Heron in the south would not speak to them. Frog in the west would say nothing, and White Mountain Thunder in the north would not speak to them. Again, at the end of four nights, the same thing happened. Those who dwelt at the south again committed crime, and again they had contentions. One woman and one man sought to enter in the east to complain to the chief, but they were driven out. In the south, they thought to go in where Blue Heron lay, but again they were driven out. In the west, where Frog was the chief, again they tried to enter, but again they were driven out. To the north again they were driven out. The chief said, None of you shall enter here. Go elsewhere and keep on going. That night at Nehodula they held a council, but they arrived at no decision. At dawn, Teholtziti began to talk. You pay no attention to my words. Everywhere you disobey me. You must go to some other place. Not upon this earth shall you remain. Thus he spoke to them. Among the women, for four nights they talked about it. At the end of the fourth night, in the morning, as they were rising, something white appeared in the east. It appeared also in the south, the west, and the north. It looked like a chain of mountains, without a break, stretching around them. It was water that surrounded them. Water impassable. Water insurmountable. Flowed all around. All at once they started. They went in circles upward till they reached the sky. It was smooth. They looked down, but there the water had risen, and there was nothing else but water there. While they were flying around, one having a blue head thrust out his head from the sky and called to them saying in here to the eastward there is a hole they entered the hole and went through it up to the surface of the second world the blue one belonged to the swallow people the swallow people lived there a great many of their houses rough and lumpy lay scattered all around each tapered toward the top and at that part there was a hole for entrance a great many people approached and gathered around the strangers but they said nothing The first world was red in color. The second world into which the people had now entered was blue. They sent out two couriers, a locust and a white locust, to the east to explore the land and to see if there were in it any people like themselves. At the end of two days the couriers returned and said that in one day's travel they had reached the edge of the world, the top of a great cliff that arose from an abyss whose bottom they could not see, but that they found in all their journey no people no animals of any kind, no trees, no grass, no sagebrush, no mountains, nothing but bare, level ground. The same couriers were then dispatched, in turn, to the south, to the west, and to the north. They were gone on each journey two days, and when they returned, related as before, that they had reached the edge of the world and discovered nothing but an uninhabited waste. Here, then, the strangers found themselves in the center of a vast, barren plain where there was neither food nor kindred people. When the couriers had returned from the north, the swallows visited the camp of the newly arrived people, and asked them why they had sent out the couriers to the east. We sent them out, was the reply, to see what was in the land, to see if there were any people like ourselves here. And what did your couriers tell you? asked the swallows. They told us that they came to the edge of the world, yet found no plant and no living thing in all the land. The same questions were asked, and the same answers given, for the other points of the compass. They spoke the truth, said the swallow people. Had you asked us in the beginning what the land contained, we would have told you, and saved you all your trouble. Until you came, no one has ever dwelt in all this land but ourselves. The people then said to the swallows, You understand our language, and are much like us. You have legs, feet, bodies, heads, and wings, as we have. Why cannot your people and our people become friends? Let it be as you wish, said the Swallows, and both parties began at once to treat each other as members of one tribe. They mingled among one another, and addressed one another by the terms of relationship, as my brother, my sister, my father, my son, etc. They all lived together pleasantly and happily for twenty-three days. But on the twenty-fourth night, one of the strangers made two free with the wife of the Swallow Chief, And next morning, when the latter found out what had happened, he said to the strangers, We have treated you as friends, and thus you return our kindness. We doubt not that for such crimes you were driven from the lower world, and now you must leave this. This is our land, and we will have you here no longer. Besides, this is a bad land. People are dying here every day, and even if we spare you, you cannot live here long. The locusts took the lead on hearing this. They soared upwards. The others followed, and all soared and circled till they reached the sky. When they reached the sky, they found it like the sky of the First World, smooth and hard, with no opening. But while they were circling around under it, they saw a white face peering out at them. It was the face of Nilsi, the wind. He called them and told them if they could fly to the south, they would find a hole through which they could pass. So off they flew as Bidden, and soon they discovered a slit in the sky, which slanted upwards toward the sun. Through this slit they flew, and soon entered the third world in the south. The color of the third world was yellow. Here they found nothing but the grasshopper people. The latter gathered around the wanderers in great numbers, but said nothing. They lived in holes in the ground along the banks of a great river which flowed through their land to the east. The wanderers sent out the same locust messengers that they had sent out in the second world to explore the land to the east, to the south, to the west, to the north, to find out what the land contained and to see if there were any kindred people in it. But the messengers returned from each journey after an absence of two days, saying they had reached the end of the world, and they had found a barren land with no people in it, save the grasshoppers. When the couriers returned from their fourth journey, the two great chiefs of the grasshoppers visited the strangers, and asked them why they had sent out the explorers. And the strangers answered that they had sent them out to see what grew in the land, and to find if there were any people like themselves in it. And what did your couriers find? said the grasshopper chiefs. They found nothing, save the bare land and the river, and no people but yourselves. There is nothing else in the land, said the chiefs. Long we have lived here, but we have seen no other people but ourselves until you came. The strangers then spoke to the grasshoppers, as they had spoken to the swallows in the second world, and begged that they might join them, and become one people with them. The grasshoppers consented, And the two peoples at once mingled among one another and embraced one another and called one another by the endearing terms of relationship as if they were all of the same tribe. As before, all went well for twenty three days, but on the twenty fourth, one of the strangers served a chief of the grasshoppers as the chief of the swallows had been served in the lower world. In the morning, when the wrong was discovered, the chief reviled the strangers and bade them depart. For such crimes, he said, I suppose you were chased from the world below. You shall drink no more of our water. You shall breathe no more of our air. Be gone. Up they flew again, and circled round and round, till they came to the sky above them, and they found it smooth and hard as before. When they had circled round for some time, looking in vain for an entrance, they saw a red head stuck out of the sky, and they heard a voice which told them to fly to the west. It was the head of red wind which they saw and it was his voice that spoke to them. The passage which they found in the west was twisted round in the tendril of a vine. It had thus been made by the wind. They flew up in circles through it, and came out in the fourth world. Four of the grasshoppers came with them. One was white, one blue, one yellow, and one black. We have grasshoppers of these four colors with us to this day. The surface of the fourth world was mixed black and white. The colors in the sky were the same as in the lower worlds, but they differed in their duration. In the first world, the white, the blue, the yellow, the black, all lasted about an equal length of time every day. In the second world, the blue and the black lasted a little longer than the other two colors. In the third world, they lasted still longer. In the fourth world, there was but little of the white and yellow and blue and black lasted most of the time, as yet there was neither sun, moon, nor star. When they arrived on the surface of the fourth world, they saw no living thing, but they observed four great snow-covered peaks sticking up at the horizon, one at the east, one at the south, one at the west, and one at the north. They sent two couriers to the east. They returned at the end of two days. They related that they had not been able to reach the eastern mountain, and that though they had traveled far, they had seen no track or trail or sign of life. Two couriers were then sent to the south. When they returned at the end of two days, they related that they had reached a low range of mountains this side of the great peak. That they had seen no living creature, but had seen two different kinds of tracks, such as they had never seen before. And they described such as the deer and turkey make now. Two couriers were next sent to the west. In two days, these returned, having failed to reach the great peak in the west, and having seen no living thing and no sign of life. At last, two couriers were sent to the north. When these got back to their kindred, they said they had found a race of strange men who cut their hair square in front, who lived in houses in the ground and cultivated fields. These people, who were engaged in gathering their harvest, the courier said, treated them very kindly, and gave them food to eat. It was now evident to the wanderers that the fourth world was larger than any of the worlds below. The day following the return of the couriers who went to the north, two of the newly discovered race, Kisani, Pueblos they were called, entered the camp of the exiles and guided the latter to a stream of water. The water was red, and the Kisani told the wanderers they must not walk through the stream, for if they did, the water would injure their feet. The Kisani showed them a square raft made of four logs, a white pine, a blue spruce, a yellow pine, and a black spruce, on which they might cross. So they went over the stream and visited the homes of the kasani The Kassani gave the wanderers corn and pumpkins to eat, and the latter lived for some time on the food given to them daily by their new friends. They held a council among themselves in which they resolved to mend their manners for the future and do nothing to make the Kasani angry. The land of the Kassani had neither rain nor snow. The crops were raised by irrigation. Late in the autumn, they heard in the east the distant sound of a great voice calling. They listened and waited, and soon heard the voice nearer and louder. They listened still and heard a voice a third time, nearer and louder than before. Once more they listened, and soon they heard the voice louder still, and clear like the voice of one near at hand. A moment later, four mysterious beings appeared to them. These were Bitsis Lekai, or white body, a being like the god of this world, whom the Navajos call Hatsisealti, Bitsis Litsoi, or yellow body, and Bitsis Lizin, or black body, who is the same as the present Navajo god of the fire, Hatsesini. These beings, without speaking, made many signs to the people, as if instructing them, but the latter did not understand them. When the gods had gone, the people long discussed the mysterious visit and tried to make out what the gods meant by the signs they had made. Thus, the gods visited four days in succession. On the fourth day, when the other three had departed, Body remained behind and spoke to the people in their own language. He said, you do not seem to understand the signs that these gods make you, so I must tell you what they mean. They want to make more people, but in form like themselves. You have bodies like theirs, but you have the teeth, The feet, the claws, of beasts and insects. The new creatures are to have hands and feet like ours. But you are uncleanly. You smell badly. Have yourselves well cleansed when we return. We will come back in twelve days. On the morning of the twelfth, the people washed themselves well. The women dried themselves with yellow cornmeal, the men with white cornmeal. Soon after the ablutions were completed, they heard the distant call of the approaching gods. It was shouted, as before, four times, nearer and louder at each repetition. And after the fourth call, the gods appeared. Blue body and black body each carried a sacred buckskin. White body carried two ears of corn, one yellow, one white. Each covered at the end completely with grains. The gods laid one buckskin on the ground with the head to the west. On this, they placed the two ears of corn with their tips to the east and over the corn they spread the other buckskin with its head to the east. Under the white ear, they put the feather of a white eagle. Under the yellow ear, the feather of a yellow eagle. Then they told the people to stand at a distance and allow the wind to enter. The white wind blew from the east, and the yellow wind blew from the west, between the skins. While the wind was blowing, eight of the Mirage people came and walked around the objects on the ground four times. And as they walked, The eagle feathers, whose tips protruded from between the buckskins, were seen to move. When the Mirage people had finished their walk, the upper buckskin was lifted. The ears of corn had disappeared. A man and a woman lay there in their stead. The white ear of corn had been changed into a man, the yellow ear into a woman. It was the wind that gave them life. It is the wind that comes out of the mouths now that gives us life. When this ceases to blow, we die. In the skin at the tips of our fingers, we see the trail of the wind. It shows us where the wind blew when our ancestors were created. The pair thus created were first man and first woman. Atzi Hastin and Atzi Estsen. The gods directed the people to build an enclosure of brushwood for the pair. When the enclosure was finished, first man and first woman entered it. And the gods said to them, Live together now as husband and wife. At the end of four days hermaphrodite twins were born and at the end of four days more a boy and a girl were born who in four days grew to maturity and lived with one another as husband and wife the primal pair had in all five pairs of twins the first of which only was barren being hermaphrodites in four days after the last pair of twins was born the gods came again and took first man and first woman away to the eastern mountain where the gods dwelt and kept them there for four days when they returned all their children were taken to the eastern mountain and kept there for four days. Soon after they all returned, it was observed that they occasionally wore masks such as the hast and hast wear now, and that when they wore these masks, they prayed for all good things, for abundant rain and abundant crops. It is thought, too, that during their visit to the eastern mountain they learned the awful secrets of witchcraft, for the Antihi always keep such masks with them and marry those too nearly related to them. When they returned from the eastern mountain, the brothers and sisters separated, and keeping the fact of their former unlawful marriages secret, the brothers married women of the Mirage people, and the sisters married men of the Mirage people. They kept secret, too, all the mysteries they had learned in the eastern mountain. The women, thus married, bore children every four days, and the children grew to maturity in four days, were married, and in their turn had children every four days. This numerous offspring married among the Kisani, and among those who had come from the lower world, and soon there was a multitude of people in the land. These descendants of first man and first woman made a great farm. They built a dam and dug a wide irrigation ditch. But they feared the Kassani might injure their dam or their crops, so they put one of the hermaphrodites to watch the dam and the other to watch the lower end of the field. The hermaphrodite who watched at the dam invented pottery. He made first a plate, a bowl, and a dipper which were greatly admired by the people. The hermaphrodite who lived at the lower end of the farm invented the wicker water bottle. Others made from thin split boards of cottonwood, implements which they shoved before them to clear the weeds out of the land. They made also hoes from the shoulder blades of deer and axes of stone. They got their seeds from the Kassani. Once they killed a little deer, and someone among them thought that perhaps they might make from the skin of the head a mask by means of which they could approach other deer and kill them. They tried to make such a mask, but failed. They could not make it fit. They debated over the invention and considered it for four days, but did not succeed. On the morning of the fifth day, they heard the gods shouting in the distance. As on previous occasions, they shouted four times, and after the fourth, they made their appearance. They brought with them heads of deer and of antelope. They showed the people how the masks were made and fitted, how the eye holes were cut, how the motions of the deer were to be imitated, and explained to them all the other mysteries of the deer hunt. Next day, hunters went out and several deer were killed. From these, more masks were made, and with these masks, more men went out to hunt. After that time, the camp had an abundance of meat. The people dressed the deer skins and made garments out of them. The people from the third world had been in the fourth world eight years when the following incident occurred. One day, they saw the sky stooping down and the earth rising up to meet it. For a moment, they came in contact. And then, there sprang out of the earth at the point of contact, the coyote and the badger. We think now that the coyote and the badger are children of the sky. The coyote rose first, and for this reason we think he is the elder brother of the badger. At once, the coyote came over to the camp, and skulked around among the people, while the badger went down into the hole that led to the lower world. First man told the people the names of the four mountains which rose in the distance. They were named the same as the four mountains that now bound the Navajo land. There was Sinadzini to the east, Satsil in the south, Dakoslid in the west, and Dependza in the north, and he told them that a different race of people lived in each mountain. First man was the chief of all these people in the fourth world, except the Kisani. He was a great hunter, and his wife, first woman, was very corpulent. One day, he brought home from the hunt a fine, fat deer. The woman boiled some of it, and they had a hearty meal. When they were done, the woman wiped her greasy hands on her dress and made a remark which greatly enraged her husband. They had a quarrel about this which First Man ended by jumping across the fire and remaining by himself in silence for the rest of the night. Next morning First Man went out early and called aloud to the people, "'Come hither, all ye men,' he said. "'I wish to speak to you, but let all the women stay behind. I do not wish to see them.' Soon all the males gathered, and he told them what his wife had said the night before. "'They believe,' he said, "'that they can live without us.' Let us see if they can hunt game and till the fields without our help. Let us see what sort of a living they can make by themselves. Let us leave them and persuade the Kisani to come with us. We will cross the stream, and when we are gone over, we will keep the raft on the other side. He sent for the Hermaphrodites. They came covered with meal, for they had been grinding corn. What have you that you have made yourselves? He asked. We have each two mealing stones. And we have cups, and bowls, and baskets, and many other things, they answered. Then take all these along with you, he ordered, and join us to cross the stream. Then all the men and the Hermaphrodites assembled at the river, and crossed to the north side on the raft. And they took over with them their stone axes, and farm implements, and everything they had made. When they had all crossed, they sent the raft down to the Kasani for them to cross. The latter came over, six gents of them. But they took their wives with them. While some of the young men were crossing the stream, they cried at parting with their wives. Still, they went at the bidding of their chief. The men left the women everything the latter had helped to make or raise. As soon as they had crossed the river, some of the men went out hunting, for the young boys needed food, and some sent to work to chop down willows and build huts. They had themselves all sheltered in four days. That winter, the women had an abundance of food, and they feasted, sang, and had a merry time. They often came down to the bank of the river and called across to the men and taunted and reviled them. Next year, the men prepared a few small fields and raised a little corn, but they did not have much corn to eat and lived a good deal by hunting. The women planted all of the old farm, but they did not work it very well. So in the winter they had a small crop, and they did not sing and make merry as in the previous winter. In the second spring, the women planted less, while the men planted more, cleared more land, and increased the size of their farm. Each year the fields and crops of the men increased, while those of the women diminished, and they began to suffer for want of food. Some went out and gathered the seeds of wild plants to eat. In the autumn of the third year of separation, many women jumped into the river and tried to swim over, but they were carried under the surface of the water and were never seen again. In the fourth year the men had more food than they could eat. Corn and pumpkins lay untouched in the fields, while the women were starving. First man, at length, began to think what the effect of his course might be. He saw that if he continued to keep the men and women apart, the race might die out. So he called the men and spoke his thoughts to them. He said, Surely our race will perish. And others said, What good is our abundance to us? We think so much of our poor women starving in our sight that we cannot eat. Then he sent a man to the shore to call across the stream to find if first woman were still there, and to bid her come down to the bank if she were. She came to the bank, and first man called to her and asked if she still thought she could live alone. No, she replied, we cannot live without our husbands. The men and the women were then told to assemble at the shores of the stream. The raft was sent over, and the women were ferried across. They were made to bathe their bodies and dry them with meal. They were put in a corral and kept there until night, when they were let out to join the men in their feasts. When they were let out of the corral, it was found that three were missing. After dark, voices were heard calling from the other side of the river. They were the voices of the missing ones, a mother and her two daughters. They begged to be ferried over, but the men told them it was too dark, that they must wait until morning. Hearing this, they jumped into the stream and tried to swim over. The mother succeeded in reaching the opposite bank and finding her husband. The daughters were seized by T. the water monster, and dragged down under the water. For three nights and three days, the people heard nothing about the young women and supposed them lost forever. On the morning of the fourth day, the call of the gods was heard four times as usual, and after the fourth call, White Body made his appearance, holding up two fingers and pointing to the river. The people supposed that these signs had reference to the lost girls. Some of the men crossed the stream on the raft and looked for the tracks of the lost ones. They traced the tracks to the edge of the water, but no farther. White Body went away, but soon returned accompanied by Blue Body. White Body carried a large bowl of white shell and blue body a large bowl of blue shell. They asked for a man and a woman to accompany them, and they went down to the river. They put both the bowls on the surface of the water and caused them to spin around. Beneath the spinning bowls the water opened, for it was hollow, and gave entrance to a large house of four rooms. The room in the east was made of the dark waters, the room in the south of the blue waters, the room in the west of the yellow waters, and the room in the north of the waters of all colors. The man and woman descended, and Coyote followed them. They went first into the east room, but there they found nothing. Then they went into the south room, but there they found nothing. Next, they went into the west room, where again they found nothing. At last, they went into the north room, and there they beheld the water monster, Tehotsebi, with the two girls he had stolen, and two children of his own. The man and the woman demanded the children. And as he said nothing in reply, they took them and walked away. But as they went out, Coyote, unperceived by all, took the two children of Teohlsity and carried them off under his robe. Coyote always wore his robe folded close. Er, Coyote always wore his robe folded close around him and always slept with it thus folded. So no one was surprised to see that he still wore his robe in this way when he came up from the waters, and no one suspected that he had stolen the children of Teohlsity. Next day, the people were surprised to see deer, turkey, and antelope running past from east to west, and to see animals of six different kinds, two kinds of hawks, two kinds of squirrels, the hummingbird, and the bat, come into their camp as if for refuge. The game animals ran past in increasing numbers during three days following. On the morning of the fourth day, when the white light rose, the people observed in the east a strange white gleam along the horizon. They sent out the locust couriers to see what caused this unusual appearance. The locusts returned before sunset and told the people that a vast flood of waters was fast approaching from the east. On hearing this, the people all assembled together, the Kassani with the others, in a great multitude. They wailed and wept over the approaching catastrophe. They wept and moaned all night and could not sleep. When the white light arose in the east next morning, the waters were seen high as mountains encircling the whole horizon except in the west, and rolling on rapidly. The people packed up all their goods as fast as they could, and ran up on a hill nearby, for temporary safety. Here they held a council. Someone suggested that perhaps the two squirrels, Hazaitso and Hazaitsazi, might help them. We will try what we can do, said the squirrels. One planted a pinyon seed, the other a juniper seed, and they grew so very fast that the people hoped they would soon grow so tall that the flood could not reach their tops, and they might find shelter there. But after the trees grew a little way, they began to branch out and grew no higher. Then the frightened people called on the weasels, Glotzekai and Glotsizni. One of these planted a spruce seed, and one a pine seed. The trees sprouted at once and grew fast, and again the people began to hope. But soon the trees commenced to branch, and they dwindled to slender points at the top, and ceased to grow higher. Now they were in the depths of despair, for the waters were coming nearer every moment when they saw two men approaching the hill on which they were gathered. One of the approaching men was old and gray-haired. The other, who was young, walked in advance. They ascended the hill and passed through the crowd, speaking to no one. The young man sat down on the summit. The old man sat down behind him. And the locusts sat down behind the old man. All facing the east. The elder took out seven bags from under his robe and opened them. Each contained a small quantity of earth. He told the people that in these bags he had earth from the seven sacred mountains. There were in the fourth world seven sacred mountains, named and placed like the sacred mountains of the present Navajo land. Ah, perhaps our father can do something for us, said the people. I cannot, but my son may be able to help you, said the old man. When they bade the son to help them, he said he would if they all moved away from where he stood, face to the west, and looked not around until he called them for no one should see him at his work. They did as he desired, and in a few moments he called them to come to him. When they came, they saw that he had spread the sacred earth on the ground and planted in it thirty-two reeds, each of which had thirty-two joints. As they gazed, they beheld the roots of the reeds sticking out into the soil and growing rapidly downward. A moment later, all the reeds joined together and became one reed of great size, with a hole in its eastern side he bade them enter the hollow of the reed through this hole. When they were all safely inside, the opening closed, and none too soon, for scarcely had it closed when they heard the loud noise of surging waters outside, saying, Yin, yin, yin! The waters rose fast, but the reed grew faster, and soon it grew so high that it began to sway. The people inside were in great fear, lest with their weight it might break and topple over into the water. White body, blue body, and Blackbody were along. Blackbody blew a great breath out through a hole in the top of the reed. A heavy dark cloud formed around the reed and kept it steady. But the reed grew higher and higher. Again it began to sway, and again the people within were in great fear, whereat he blew and made another cloud to steady the reed. By sunset it had grown up close to the sky, but it swayed and waved so much that they could not secure it to the sky until Blackbody, who was uppermost, took the plume out of his headband and stuck it through the top of the cane against the sky. And this is why the reed always carries a plume on its head now. Seeing no hole in the sky, they sent up the great hawk, Genitso, to see what he could do. He flew up and began to scratch in the sky with his claws, and he scratched and scratched till he was lost to sight. After a while he came back and said that he scratched to where he could see light, but that he did not get through the sky. Next, they sent up a locust. He was gone a long time, and when he came back, he had this story to tell. He had gotten through to the upper world, and came out on a little island in the center of a lake. When he got out, he saw approaching him from the east a black green, and from the west a yellow green. One of them said to him, Who are you, and whence come you? But he made no reply. The other then said, We own half of this world. I in the east, my brother in the west. We give you a challenge. If you can do as we do, we shall give you one half of the world. If you cannot, you must die. Each had an arrow made of black wind. He passed the arrow from side to side through his heart and flung it down to City. the locust. The latter picked up one of the arrows and ran it from side to side through his heart, as he had seen the greaves do, and threw it down. The grebes swam away, one to the east and one to the west, and troubled him no more. When they had gone, two more grebes appeared, a blue one from the south and a shining one from the north. They spoke to him as the other grebes had spoken, and gave him the same challenge. Again he passed the arrow through his heart, and the grebes departed, leaving the land to the locust. To this day we see in every locust's sides the holes made by the arrows. But the hole the locust made in ascending was too small for many people so they sent Badger up to make it larger. When Badger came back, his legs were stained black with the mud, and the legs of all Badgers have been black ever since. The first man and first woman led the way, and all the others followed them, and they climbed up through the hole to the surface of this, the Fifth World. There were a few points in this story that I found particularly interesting. Let's begin with the First World and why the people had to leave it. As is common in myths, People can't keep it in their pants. The inciting issue that caused them to flee the First World seems to be people sleeping around. Of course, this is blamed on the women, even though it takes two people to do anything. I doubt they are saying that only women were sleeping around, but that could have been the case. So the First World is lost the same way that countless worlds have been lost. It is destroyed in a flood, forcing the people to ascend to the Second World. There is a particularly interesting point where the focus zooms in on one man and one woman pleading their case to the different chiefs before being banished from the world. It has similar vibes to the story of Eden. We also see a theme that is found around the world, that of people emerging from a lower world into this one. Of course, in this case, it happens four times. We see in the second world that the people didn't learn their lesson. Again, the issue is sex. At least this time, they blame the man for sleeping with the chief's wife. Unlike the first world, the second world doesn't seem to be destroyed. The people are just forced to leave. The trouble in the third world is the one I find most interesting. Unlike the willful violations of the first two, the third problem seems to be an innocent mistake. A member of the people performs a service for the chief of the people who have taken them in. But the service is performed in the manner of the people from the second world, and not one appropriate to the chief of the third world. Again, the people are banished, but not without some guests. The inclusion of four grasshoppers coming with them is slightly entertaining. The fact that they have become kindred with the people of the earlier worlds might trace back to something from their travels as the people who would eventually be the Navajo made their way from Alaska to the southwest. But we don't know enough of their history to try and piece things together. When they reach the fourth world, We start to see where the history we know begins to intersect with the myth. People begin to learn skills from the Pueblo people who were there when the people arrived. The description of the land sounds like the lands where the Pueblo people actually lived. The following part is curious. It describes the people meeting four beings who they call gods. The gods teach them different things, perform different ceremonies, and bestow various gifts. With the mention of the Pueblo having a historic tie-in, I am curious if this does as well. Perhaps buried deep within the symbolism in the story is an early meeting with the Spanish, or maybe with some other people group. Of course, this is only conjecture, and I would need a time machine to figure it out. Nevertheless, it is interesting to consider. The reforming of humanity, beginning with one man and one woman, is also an interesting point. The fact these two are meant to be something of an amalgamation of the people and the gods. This might also have some symbolic tie to intermarriage between the Navajo and neighboring groups in their past. Again, we can't really say for sure. Hermaphrodites are more common than many people might expect in myths. But they are often deities. In this case, they are the firstborn of the first man and the first woman. We see an imparting of knowledge as the first couple and their children are taken away by the gods to be trained. Most of this knowledge is good but there is a little comment about them also learning dark things. Dark knowledge always seems to get in the way. Oddly, it isn't a major point in this story. When First Man compliments his wife, we see something that would not work for most people today. First Man calls his wife corpulent, or very fat. Today, most women I know would take that as an insult. Though the Spanish term gordita, or little fat one, is. Oddly, still a term of endearment. Historically, heavier women were a sign of health and fertility. So in this case, the first man is complimenting her on her health, beauty, and mothering. All good things. But I'm still not using that compliment with my wife. After such an endearing compliment, the first man takes a turn and becomes a jerk. Apparently, first woman makes a comment that women could survive without men. First man is rightly a little upset by this but the fact that he risks starving the women by removing the men from them doesn't say much for him. Yes, they eventually go back because they worry about the starving women, but First Man has to ask if his wife is even still alive after what he has put them through. The entire ordeal seems very negative to women. At first, they are well off with the provisions left behind, and the men scrape by, starting over again. Then. The men show that they are capable, and the women are nothing without them. Honestly, this is not what I expected from the story. I expected more of a balance, where the two complemented each other in being able to provide what the other lacked. This fight between the men and the women indirectly leads to them being expelled from the fourth world, as a water monster has kids with two lost daughters, and the kids are taken by Coyote. Now, Coyote is a popular figure in many Native American stories. He is a trickster, but I don't have time to delve into that here. Like the first world, the fourth world is lost in a flood. This time, the group that escapes is a massive interconnected bunch with the people, the Pueblos, the gods, the first couple, and the mixed descendants of everybody. This is probably something to do with the Navajo intermarrying with their neighbors, but in any case, it is interesting. The fifth world is, of course, the world we know and love. The last point I would like to make is that the number four is important. If you notice, the story constantly repeats the four directions. There are four days for a child to be born, and four more for that child to grow to adulthood. Four is a common important number in stories around the world, but this one repeats it more than I have seen in any other story. And that brings us to the end of the story. From there, we dive into what we know of their history. When dealing with Native American history, we have a very familiar problem that we faced with Aboriginal history. There isn't really a written record. Aside from a small handful of cultures, most notably the Mayans, there wasn't any writing in the Americas up until Columbus. Well, except for the Vikings, but that's a whole different story. The history of the early Americans has been a mystery to people ever since the first Europeans realized that America wasn't Asia. Finding a continent that was mostly unknown to the Western world was a surprise. Finding out that people already lived there was possibly even more surprising. How the Native Americans made it to the Americas is a topic of much debate. Estimated dates range from just a few thousand years ago to somewhere between 20 and 40,000 years ago. These older datings got an extra boost of authenticity last year, as fossilized footprints in White Sands, New Mexico, were dated to around 21,000 years ago. These footprints are some of the oldest evidence we have of any habitation in the Americas, and it has pushed most estimates back by several thousand years. Just because we have a better idea of when people were here doesn't mean we still have a good idea of how they got here. The most enduring hypothesis has been one or another variations on the Bering Land Bridge. During the Ice Ages, when so much of the world's oceans were caught up in great glaciers, people could walk across from the Russian steppe all the way into Alaska. In this hypothesis, these people continued to head south following passes between glaciers until they eventually ended up in South America. Once reaching the end of the New World, they began to make their way north again. One of the other hypotheses is a seafaring culture, or at least a coastal fishing culture, with people who were able to take boats down the western coast of the United States and then follow rivers inland and thereby bypass the glaciers that were blocking the northern land routes. Now, there is heavy debate on both sides and there are plenty of other little ideas in between. Some hypotheses posit multiple migrations, possibly a mix of seafaring and land bridge people. One such migration is believed to have been around 10,000 years ago, when the Bering Strait was still only a few miles across. Some believe this migration brought the people who would eventually become the Navajo. With no written history and little archaeology, newer studies often resort to genetics to try and piece together an idea of how people moved around in the past. Unfortunately, this is a difficult prospect in the case of the Navajo. Since 2002, Navajo leaders and community members have opted out of genetic research, citing fears of how the research would be used. Misuse of genetic material has happened before. In 2002, a member of the Havasupai tribe was told that their DNA was being used in the diabetes study. They were only told afterward that their DNA had also been used in other studies including one tracing where the tribe had come from. One fear among some groups is that such research would be used to strip them of their ancestral land. In 2017, the Navajo tribe discussed lifting this ban, but still retaining strong controls over any research material. These fears are understandable with the records of very questionable practices in the past, but it makes unraveling the mysteries of prehistoric America that much more difficult. There are some things that are generally accepted. The Navajo people appear to be part of a group known as Athabascans. This connection is made by tracing language groups. The Athabascan languages are separated into three groups. Northern, Pacific Coast, and Southern. These people originated in what is now Canada and Alaska. And there are still groups in these places who speak Athabascan languages. Eventually, the group that would become the Navajo migrated to the American Southwest. Scholars differ on when they think this migration took place. The earliest archaeological sites in the Mesa Verde region that can confidently be linked to the Navajo date to the mid-1500s. Some anthropologists place the beginning of their southern migration possibly as early as the 200s, with their eventual arrival in the region by the mid-1400s. These people came into contact with the Pueblo people who already inhabited the area. The migrating people split into two related groups, the Navajo and the Apache. While the Apache continued their nomadic lifestyle, the Navajo adopted many things from the Pueblo. They settled in and began working the land. Our word for Navajo comes from this distinction. The Navajo people call themselves the Dine, or the people. The Pueblo called them the Navajo, meaning farm fields in the valley. When the Spanish arrived, they adopted this name. Early records referred to the Navajo as Apaches de Navajo, Apaches who farm in the valley. This was eventually shortened to Navajo. In addition to planting fields of crops such as corn, the Navajo also adopted sheep and goats, after the Spanish introduced them to the region. The cultural exchange between the Navajo and the Pueblo was not always peaceful, but it was fruitful. Scholars think that the Navajo learned skills such as farming and weaving from the Pueblo. Navajo pottery was often painted with Pueblo designs. The Navajo adopted and modified many building techniques from their Pueblo neighbors. This exchange only heightened during the Pueblo revolt against the Spanish in 1680. The Navajo helped the Pueblo drive the Spanish back for some time, but by 1693 the Spanish had returned in force. Pueblo survivors found refuge among the Navajo. In the 1700s, the Navajo constructed many dwellings known as Pueblitos. These are dwellings constructed on rock outcroppings or in other easily defensible places. These are some of the types of buildings that I got to see on my trip down the San Juan. They used masonry construction techniques, and the buildings often contained many rooms. The reason for the defensible nature of these dwellings appears to be hostilities with the Spanish and neighboring tribes such as the Comanches and the U. The Navajo lived in the lands that would become northern Arizona, New Mexico, southern Colorado, and Utah. These lands were still claimed by the Spanish until the United States annexed them in 1848. As with many other Native American tribes, the United States had hostile relations with the Navajo. In 1863, Christopher Kit Carson was in command of the U.S. Army forces in the area. He practiced scorched-earth tactics, which severely weakened the Navajo. Kitt defeated the Navajo and forced them to surrender in 1864. They were relocated to Fort Sumner, New Mexico. This relocation has been named the Long Walk. Though the name sounds peaceful enough, the actual event was much more like an event with a more familiar name in America's history with Native Americans, the Trail of Tears. The Long Walk was a grueling 350-mile forced march that saw hundreds die or disappear along the way. The destination wasn't much better than the journey. Their living conditions were overcrowded and unsanitary, and the people were undersupplied. The Treaty of 1868 established a small Navajo reservation within what was once their homeland. Since that time, it has expanded greatly through executive order and special legislation. In 1884, executive order added much of the land in present-day southeastern Utah. The Navajo developed trade relations focused on woven rugs and silverwork. Oil, was discovered on the reservation in the 1950s and 60s. Due to the mineral wealth of their land, the Navajo tribe is one of the wealthiest tribes in the United States. This wealth is a mixed bag, as oil drilling and uranium mining have caused substantial damage to their local ecosystem. Many Navajo fought in World War I, despite Native Americans not being granted citizenship until 1924. Many Navajo also participated in World War II. The most famous group, are well known among World War II buffs for their help in creating an unbreakable code during the Pacific theater of the war. Most people are at least passingly familiar with the term Navajo Code Talkers. These were a group of Navajo soldiers who communicated by using a specialized code that had been developed using the Navajo language. It is one code that was never broken during the war. In addition to the Code Talkers, over 3,000 Navajos served in other areas of the military and several thousand more worked in war-related industries. According to the U.S. Census, there are 574 federally recognized tribes and 318 reservations in the United States. As of 2020, the Navajo are the largest tribe, consisting of almost 400,000 members officially enrolled in the tribe. Around 50% of the tribe still lives on the reservation, which takes up around 27,000 square miles of the Colorado Plateau in Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. It is the largest reservation in the United States. For a comparison, that is larger than the state of West Virginia. The Navajo Nation has its own police academy, universities, bar association, and court system. In 2021, they purchased an office in Washington, D.C., near the embassies of other sovereign nations. So that is it for the Navajo. So for the next episode, I will be doing an African creation story. I. Just have to figure out which one and do some research on it. It will be a while. I wanted to do these episodes every two weeks, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen because some of these take a lot more time to research and write than others. But the next episode and following episodes will continue to be coming. Until then. (laughs)